Chapter thirty one of the Humbugs of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Ferguson. The Humbugs of the World by P. T. Barnum. The Twenty Seventh Street Ghost Spirits on the Rampage. Chapter thirty one. In classing the ghost excitement that agitated our good people to such an extent some two years ago, among the humbugs of the age, I must at the outset remind my readers that there was no little accumulation of what is termed respectable testimony as to the reality of his ghost-ship in 27th Street. One fine Sunday morning, in the early part of 1863, my friends of the Sunday Mercury astonished their many thousands of patrons with an account that had been brought to them of a fearful spectre that had made its appearance in one of the best houses in 27th Street. The narrative was detailed with circumstantial accuracy, and yet with an apparent discreet reserve, that gave the finishing touch of delightful mystery to the story. The circumstances, as set forth in the opening letter, for many others followed, were briefly these. A highly respectable family, residing on 27th Street, one of our handsome uptown thoroughfares, became aware, toward the close of the year 1862, that something extraordinary was taking place in their house, then one of the best in the neighbourhood. Sundry mutterings and whisperings began to be heard among the servants employed about the domicile, and after a little while it became almost impossible to induce them to remain there for love or money. The visitors of the family soon began to notice that their calls, which formerly were so welcome, particularly among the young people of the establishment, seemed to give embarrassment, and that the smiles that greeted them as early as seven in the evening gradually gave place to uneasy gestures, and finally to positive hints at the lateness of the hour, or the fatigue of their host, by nine o'clock. The head of the family was a plain, matter-of-fact old gentleman, by no means likely to give way to any superstitious terrors one of your hard-headed businessmen who pooh-poohed demons, hobgoblins, and all other kinds of spirits, except the purest Santa Cruz and genuine old Otard, and he fell into a great rage when, upon his repeated gruff demands for an explanation, he was delicately informed that his parlour was haunted. He vowed that somebody wanted to drive him from the house, that there was a conspiracy afoot among the women to get him still higher uptown, and into a bigger brownstone front, and refused to believe one word of the ghost story. At length, one day, while sitting in his growlery, as the ladies called it, in the lower story, his attention was aroused by a clatter on the stairs, and looking out into the entry, he saw a party of carpenters and painters, who had been employed upon the parlour floor, beating a precipitate retreat toward the front door. "'Stop, stop, you infernal fools! What's all this hullabaloo about?' shouted the old gentleman. No reply, no halt upon the part of the mechanics, but away they went down the steps and along the street, as though Satan himself, or Mosby the gorilla, was at their heels. They were pursued and ordered back, but absolutely refused to come, swearing that they had seen the evil one in propria persona, and threats, persuasions, and bribes alike proved vain to induce them to return. This made the matter look serious, and a family council was held forthwith. It wouldn't do to let matters go on in this way, and something must be thought of as a remedy. It was in this half-solemn and half-tragic conclave that the paterfamilias was at last put in possession of the mysterious occurrences that had been disturbing the peace of his domestic hearth. 
A ghost had been repeatedly seen in his best drawing-room, a genuine, undeniable, unmitigated ghost. The spectre was described by the female members of the family as making his appearance at all hours, chiefly, however, in the evening, of course. Now the good old orthodox idea of a ghost is of a very long, cadaverous, ghastly personage, of either sex appearing in white draperies, with uplifted finger, and attended or preceded by sepulchral sounds, whist, hush, and sometimes the rattling of casements, and the jingling of chains. A bluish glare and a strong smell of brimstone seldom failed to enhance the horror of the scene. This ghost, however, came, it seems, in more ordinary guise, but none the less terrible for his natural style of approach and costume. He was usually seen in the front parlour, which was on the second story and faced the street. There he would be found seated in a chair near the fireplace, his attire the garb of a carman or carter, and hence the name Carter's Ghost afterward frequently applied to him. There he would sit entirely unmoved by the approach of living denizens of the house, who, at first, would suppose that he was some drunken or insane intruder, and only discover their mistake as they drew near, and saw the firelight shining through him, and noticed the glare of his frightful eyes, which threatened all comers in the most unearthly way. Such was the purport of the first sketch that appeared in the Sunday Mercury, stated so distinctly and impressively, that the effect could not fail to be tremendous among our sensational public. To help the matter, another brief notice, to the same effect, appeared in the Sunday issue of a leading journal on the same morning. The news-dealers and street-carriers caught up the novelty instanter, and before noon not a copy of the Sunday Mercury could be bought in any direction. The country issue of the Sunday Mercury had still a larger sale. On Sunday morning every sheet in town made some allusion to the ghost, and many even went so far as to give the very supposed number of the house favoured with his visitations. The result of this enterprising guess was ludicrous enough, bordering a little too upon the serious. Indignant householders rushed down to the Sunday Mercury office with the most amusing wrath, threatening and denouncing the astonished publishers with all sorts of legal action for their presumed trespass, when in reality their paper had designated no place or person at all. But the grandest demonstration of popular excitement was revealed in 27th Street itself. Before noon a considerable portion of the thoroughfare below Sixth Avenue was blocked up with a dense mass of people of all ages, sizes, sexes, and nationalities who had come to see the ghost. A liquor store or two, nearby, drove a splendid spiritual business, and by evening the fun grew so fast and furious that a whole squad of police had to be employed to keep the sidewalks and even the carriageway clear. The ghost was shouted for to make a speech like any other new celebrity, and old ladies and gentlemen peering out of upper-story windows were saluted with playful tokens of regard, such as turnips, eggs of ancient date, and other things too numerous to mention from the crowd. Nor was the throng composed entirely of Gothamites. The surrounding country sent in its contingent. They came on foot, on horseback, in wagons, and arrayed in all the costumes known about these parts since the days of Rip Van Winkle. Crookshanks would have made a fortune from his easy sketches of only a few figures in the scene, and thus the concourse continued for days, together arriving at early morn, and staying there in the street until dewy eve. As a matter of course, there were various explanations of the story, propounded by various people, all wondrously wise in their own conceit. 
some would have it that the ghost was got up by some of the neighbours, who wished, in this manner, to drive away disreputable occupants. Others insisted that it was the revenge of the ousted tenant, etc., etc. Everybody offered his own theory, and as is usual in such cases, nobody was exactly right. Meanwhile, the Sunday Mercury continued its publications of the further progress of the mystery from week to week, for a space of nearly two months, until the whole country seemed to have gone ghost-mad. Apparitions and goblins dire were seen in Washington, Rochester, Albany, Montreal, and other cities. The spiritualists took it up and began to discuss the Carter ghost with the utmost zeal. One startling individual, a physician and a philosopher, emerged from his professional shell into full-fledged glory as the greatest candidate of all, and published revelations of his own intermediate intercourse with the terrific Carter. In every nook and corner of the land, tremendous posters in white and yellow broke out upon the walls and windows of news depots, with capitals a foot long and exclamation points like drumsticks, announcing fresh instalments of the ghost story and it was a regular fight between go-ahead vendors who should get the next batch of horrors in advance of his rivals. Nor was the effect abroad the least feature of this stupendous sell. The English, French, and German press translated some of the articles in epitome, and wrote grave commentaries thereon. The stage soon caught the blaze, and Professor Pepper at the Royal Polytechnic Institute in London invented a most ingenious device for producing ghosts which should walk about upon the stage in such a perfectly astounding manner as to throw poor Hamlet's father and the evil genius of Brutus quite into the shade. Pepper's ghost soon crossed the Atlantic, and all our theatres were speedily alive with nocturnal apparitions. The only real ghosts, however, four in number, came out at the museum in an appropriate drama which had an immense run, all for twenty-five cents, or only six and a quarter cents per ghost. But I must not forget to say that really the details given in the Sunday Mercury were well calculated to lead captive a large class of minds prone to luxuriate in the marvellous when well mixed with plausible reasoning. The most circumstantial accounts were given of sundry, gifted young ladies, grave and learned professors, reliable gentlemen, where are those not found, lonely watchers and others, who had sought interviews with the ghost to their own great enlightenment, indeed, but likewise complete discomfiture. Pistols were fired at him, pianos played and songs sung for him, and finally his daguerreotype taken on prepared metallic plates set upright in the haunted room. One shrewd artist brought out an exact photographic likeness of the distinguished stranger on carts to visit, and made immense sales. The apparitions, too, multiplied. An old man, a woman, and a child made their appearance in the House of Wonders, and at last a gory head with distended eyeballs swimming in a sea of blood upon a platter, like that of Holophanes, capped the climax. Certain wiseacres here began to see political allusions in the ghost, and many actually took the whole affair to be a cunningly devised political satire upon this or that party, according as their sympathy swayed them. It would have been a remarkable portion of this strange eventful history, of course, if Barnum could have escaped the accusation of being its progenitor. I was continually beset, and frequently, when more than usually busy, thoroughly annoyed by the innuendos of my visitors that I was the father of the ghost. "'Come now, Mr. Barnum, this is going a little too far,' some good old dame or grandfather would say to me. 
You oughtn't to scare people in this way. These ghosts are ugly customers. My dear sir, or madam, I would say, as the case might be, I do assure you I know nothing whatever about the ghost, and as for spirits, you know I never touch them, and have been preaching against them nearly all my life. Well, well, you will have the last turn, they'd retort as they edged away, but you needn't tell us. We guess we've found the ghost. Now, all I can add about this strange hallucination is that those who came to me to see the original Carter really saw the elephant. The wonderful apparition disappeared at length, as suddenly as he had come. The bull's-eye brigade, as the squad of police put on duty to watch the neighbourhood for various reasons was termed, hung to their work and flashed the light of their lanterns into faces of lonely couples for some time afterward, but quiet, at length, settled down over all, and it has been, it seems, reserved for my pen to record briefly the history of the 27th Street Ghost. End of chapter 31 Recording by Linda Ferguson